Hello, food nerds. Welcome back to Literally Delicious. I'm Nick, and we're so happy that you're joining us here today. Thank you for stopping by for some food fun. The story I have for you today is from Andre Debus's House of Sand and Fog, 1999 novel later made into a movie in the year 2003. We are going to make Persian food from that novel today, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how this novel really covers the immigrant experience of people who were immigrating to the United States from Iran for various political reasons, and talk a little bit about the American dream today. It'll be one of our big themes. So I'm just so happy that you're here. Thanks for stopping by and spending some time with us. If you would like to see the recipes from today's episode and some pictures, go to our Instagram at Literally Delish Pod. That is at L I T E R A L L Y Delish Pod. And you can see the recipes, the photos there. You can send us a message. We love whenever you respond to our stories. And if you want to recommend a book, a dish from a book, a drink from a book that you want to see us do on the podcast, let us know. Send us an Instagram message, or even better, send us an email at literallydelishpod at gmail.com and we look forward to reading your emails and making those recipes here on the podcast very soon. So today's book, Andre Dubus's House of Sand and Fog, it covers two main characters and the plot of it is kind of uh, difficult to sum up, but I'll try my best here to be concise. First character to mention, I think, is Masood Birani who is an Iranian immigrant who fled Iran after the revolution of 1979. You see, he was an ally to the overthrown Shah and uh, colonel in the Iranian Air Force. And as he moves to California, he has to discover, along with his wife, Nadi, and their two children, a new way of living without the, the rights and the sort of honors that he had as a colonel in the military. On the other hand, we have Kathy Niccolo, who is an East Coast transplant trying to get her life back together after uh, she's recovering from addiction. So after her recovery program from addiction and her husband leaves her and her house gets taken away from her because of uh, her failing to pay taxes. But over at the end of the day, overall, she had done nothing wrong. Without giving too many spoilers away, there was a clerical error which resulted in Kathy losing her house. And as Kathy loses her house, somebody claims it at auction. And that person just happens to be Masood Birani, who is trying to create a new life for himself, a new occupation by buying houses that are being foreclosed and selling them at a flipped, selling flipped houses at a greater price. So that is how these two characters meet. And the story centers around this battle over the house. As you can see, there are quite a lot of differences between this week's novel and last week's novel, which was so heavily plot-driven that intricately weaved together a lot of historical events. This novel is really based on characterization and the creation of these two characters who are so complex that it's hard to say that you like any one of them more than another. It's hard to say that you're rooting for one. They both have sort of their pros and cons, so to speak, their positive qualities and their negative qualities. 
And what Dubois does a really great job of here is experimenting with code switching whenever the narration switches from the viewpoint of Birani to the viewpoint of Niccolo, the, the entire tone shifts. Different words are used, the syntax changes, and I think that's one of the most enjoyable things about the book itself is just getting inside of these characters' heads a little bit. So, where does food become involved in the House of Sand and Fog? Well, in the, in the movie, I was going to say in the movie, in the book, there is a dinner that Birani and Nadi host for their daughter, Soraya, who's just been married before the book begins. And they're trying to impress uh, the son-in-law's family. And all parties here, uh, when they lived in Iran, came from the middle class. And what I learned from my research here on Iranian class is that pre-revolution, your ties to the political power of the day, that is the Shah, had a lot more to do with your sort of social standing than did your wealth. However, as you transition to the United States, which is based upon well, what property do you have and how much wealth do you make from your job, Birani feels a lot of pressure to maintain the image of himself as the highly powerful colonel that he was in Iran. And so this meal is one of those ways in which uh, Birani and his wife Nadi can kind of experience and live in the old ways that they had lived in in Iran. And they make a really, really huge meal for their daughter and their son-in-law. And when Birani asks Nadi to prepare this menu for the party, it uh, just really brings a lot of joy to her as she gets the chance to really practice her cultural identity and customs in their new country. Birani thinks to himself, my wife's face became so lighted with happiness at the modest fashion in which our lives appear to be returning to the old ways. And they do lots of other things too besides cook. They hang up photos of Birani with the Shah and with the general uh, who he was stationed with and who he served under. And all of these are sort of ways of conspicuously pointing at when they were in Iran, they were of high class. And so this meal is kind of both something familiar to us, making, you know, your best dinner for your in-laws when they come over, but also something uh, quite uh rooted in Iranian culture, or, or Persian culture, as we say, in the United States. So one of the things that I mentioned at the top of this podcast was how the American dream seems to be all the while at play here, because as Birani attempts to buy this house that was foreclosed by the, the tax office, was taken away from Kathy Nicolo by the tax office, I think that he's run up against this thing in the United States where it's uh, seeming like you can do whatever you want if you have you know, the opportunity and the means, you can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you can become the wealthy person that you envision yourself as, but he comes across so many roadblocks on his way to kind of recreating his life in the United States. And I'll give you one example here. 
Kathy Niccolo in the novel Be Friends, and I'm not trying to give away too many spoilers here, but Be Friends, a police officer who comes over and intimidates the Biranis and threatens to call the immigration officials and the immigration offices to uh, kind of threaten them to give the house back to the county and ultimately give the house back to Kathy Niccolo. So I think that there is this myth that you can do whatever you can, can, whatever you put your mind to and your resources to in the United States, but Birani really kind of comes up against a lot of roadblocks, and so does Niccolo, too, in her journey to reclaim the house that her father owned. It seems like in the United States, one part of the American dream is that home ownership, what property you have is yours, but because of a clerical error, her entire family's wealth and history that is tied into this house is taken away at a moment's notice. So I think that this book really does a great job besides talking about food, which has a lot of references in the text, of alighting on the American dream, some of its myths, and some of the truth behind uh, what you can accomplish in the United States and how it is so different from Iran. One final example before we get into the kitchen of a juxtaposing scene. I think that there's a really interesting contrast between Birani and his family and their Persian culture, and Kathy Niccolo and uh, her boyfriend, who I I won't mention right now because I don't want to spoil it. So while Nadi and Birani make this huge elaborate dinner to show their social standing and in a way show that they are higher class or what's called puldar, it's a Farsi word for rich that is continually repeated in the text by Birani. So in an effort to prove that they're puldar or rich, they make this huge elaborate meal. They buy really nice champagne that they can't afford. They uh, load the house with flowers. They put out on the Turkish Cypress coffee table uh, silver platters of pistachios and chocolates and in a lot of ways show in their home that they are wealthy. And on the other hand, uh, Kathy and her boyfriend, they go out to a really expensive dinner in San Francisco one of those rotating kitchen or rotating dining rooms. So I think that it's very interesting in the United States, if you're trying to impress somebody, you take them out to a nice dinner. And I know that this is different for different people, but just generalizing here, but in the Persian culture that uh, Dubus learns about in ways that I'll, I'll mention whenever I get into the kitchen, he learns from a friend about the different Persian customs and the different Persian culinary institutions uh, that, if you want to impress somebody, you you cook for them, and you don't go out to a fancy dinner like we might do in the United States. So one of the things that I really take great joy in as I do this podcast is learning all the different cultural things, cultural practices that different people do and different immigrant groups do. And so what I'm going to attempt to recreate in the kitchen today is Koresh Badimjan, which is an eggplant stew that I'll make with beef, and uh, kete, which is a very simple Persian rice. Along with the rice, I'm going to attempt to make tadik, which is scorched rice, very crispy rice that's very prized in Iranian food. So it's the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. And so I've never attempted to make this before, and I hope that I do it right. So stay around, food nerds, and listen to 
our journey continue as I take us into the kitchen now to make Persian food from Andre Debus's House of Sand and Fog. All right, let's get to it. Why just read it when you can eat it? Hello, party people. Welcome into the kitchen where I am making Koresh Badanjan from Andre Debus's House of Sand and Fog. So, Koresh Badanjan means stew of eggplant in Farsi. Uh, but the base ingredients of it uh, may contain beef or lamb as well. So in my Dutch oven here, I have sweating in a couple tablespoons of oil, some beef cubed, uh, basically stew meat, along with three sliced onions. So now with that, cooking away, we can move over to our eggplants. I have two small Italian eggplants here, so you could also use Japanese eggplant. What we're going to do is slice these lengthwise, about a half an inch thick, and then salt them heavily. The key is to salt before cooking the eggplant to draw out any moisture. Moisture is what gives eggplant its uh, kind of bitter flavor. So you just want to get rid of any of that and have some sweet eggplant. So I'm going to skin the eggplant first. The skins can be a little bit tough. So the story behind this recipe that I'm using here, which could be made vegan as well, by the way, uh, is that the author, Debus, uh, really wanted to learn as much as he could about uh, Persian or Iranian culture. So. He uh, has a good friend. His name is Karush Zomorodian. And this is uh, Mr. Zomorodian's recipe for uh, Kores Bademjong, excuse me. Okay. So I'm going half an inch thick slice on the eggplant, which is headed toward the fryer. So well, don't worry, we're not gonna cook the eggplant in all of that salt. We're actually going to rinse the salt off before we fry it up. Okay, that's one eggplant done. On to the other. Koresvadenjan is a stew, very homey stew that's made quite often in Persian households according to my research and the one that I'm making here doesn't have some of the specialty ingredients that you can get from uh, your local specialty food store but this recipe is one that uh, the author Debus enjoyed as he was studying Persian culture for House of Sand and Fog. His friend made this for him a lot, and this was one of the author's favorite dishes. And I think it's gonna be one of your favorites soon, too. All right, got my second eggplant done here. I'm going to move these over to a platter. and salt them liberally. And don't worry, if you think you're putting on too much salt, we are going to rinse that salt off. 
the beef is browning very nicely here. It smells delicious. I'm going to turn my attention back to the beef here in a second after I salt all these eggplants. Okay, so once your meat appears not to have any more pink left in it, give it a nice stir and then add to it two cups of water turmeric and cinnamon the turmeric you're going to need a quarter teaspoon and the cinnamon a half teaspoon Okay, I'm gonna add a little bit of salt and pepper now here so that it tastes great and it's seasoned throughout. So, give that beef another stir up here and we're gonna let this simmer for a full 45 minutes. We're gonna knock the heat down a little bit here from medium-high to medium and let that stew come together and with that we can turn our attention back to the eggplant here which we're going to let sit for let's say about 20 minutes to get the moisture out. Crust bedem John, excuse me is served alongside of rice typically and so once we get all of our eggplant and beef together in the pot to stew We'll turn our attention over to some Persian rice. Don't go away. All right, and we're back. So once you've reduced the liquid in your pot of beef by about half, stir in four teaspoons of tomato paste, a teaspoon of sugar, and a tablespoon of lime juice. Okay, that is at the end of the 45 minutes or so of cooking time there. I'm going to move that over to a different burner so that I can get started on frying my eggplants. I'm going to rinse these eggplants off. And make sure that I dry them super well with a paper towel. While you're doing this, get eight cups of water along with about three tablespoons of salt going in a pot to boil. That's going to be for your rice that you're making on the side, which you should be making. I'm putting a very thin layer of olive oil into a frying pan and while that heats up, take about four teaspoons of your boiling water for your rice. Take that and put it in a cup with a quarter teaspoon of saffron. We're gonna heat up the saffron here and get it going. And this is going to be the flavor foundation for our rice. All right, so I've got my two cups of rice that I've been soaking here. I've rinsed through a couple times so the water has drained clear. I'm going to drain this the whole way now and add my rice into my pot of water. 
parboiling right now. The rice should be still a little bit crunchy, but kind of soft enough where you can kind of crack it in half. Parboil your rice for five to 10 minutes while you fry up your eggplant. All right, food nerds. I'm frying up my last batch of eggplant here. Listen to that sizzle. That's what we love to hear. Just lightly browning it on each side before turning it over to a paper towel lined pan. So while my eggplant was frying, all you missed was that I drained my basmati rice and a fine sieve and then rinsed it to stop the cooking process. So you're gonna want to use that same pot about a two or three quart nonstick pot is what's best here. You don't want anything with too tight a fitting lid because the idea is that you want not the, you don't want the moisture to go back into the rice. You want it to, to come out of the rice. So I'm just using a nonstick uh, quart size pot. And to that, I'm going to start making my rice. So there's several different variations of Persian rice. Rice in Farsi is polo, and each one of them can be made with tadig, which is the crispy part of the bottom that I'm looking forward to making. Uh, some different varieties include uh, kete, which is simply steamed with water, oil, butter, sometimes saffron, that's the kind I'll be making today. Bagali polo, polo, excuse me, which is rice with dill and fava beans, and sabzi polo, which is herbed rice. So for each of these preparations, you're going to parboil your rice like I have just done. I'm gonna take out, flip over my eggplants here and then take them out of the pan. I'm going to transfer all of these eggplants over into the cast iron with the beef and onion stew going on and we're gonna let that simmer for another 30 minutes, okay? Meanwhile, let us assemble the ingredients for the rice with tadig. So into the pot you're going to add about two tablespoons unsalted butter or ghee and then two tablespoons of oil and the saffron liquid that you made earlier. You're going to stir that up over medium heat and then pour your rice over top after you've removed the pan from the heat building sort of a mound in the middle, away from the sides of the pot. So you want your rice to kind of be stacked up into a mound. Make about six steam holes in your rice, about two inches away from the edge of the pot, and then put uncovered back onto the stove on a medium heat. All right, just moved my rice onto the heat. And that sizzling that you're hearing right now is the formation of the tadik. So I'm gonna let that go uh, uncovered on the stove for about seven minutes. Meanwhile, I'm going to pour the additional two tablespoons of oil that I need into the pot and then a little bit more saffron oil over the top 
and then a quarter cup of water. And that is going to be all that it takes to steam the top of the rice while the bottom gets nice and crispy and delicious. Now, what you're gonna wanna do once you've begun the steaming process is wrap the lid of your pot in a clean kitchen towel, okay? And what, is that, what that's going to do is catch the steam that's coming up from the pot so that it doesn't return to the cooking pot and in that way your tzaddik can be really nice and crispy on the bottom. There's a special tool for this used in Iranian kitchens. It's called a demkesh and it kind of fits around the lid of the cooking pot. So if you have one of those, fantastic. If not, the kitchen towel is kind of the hack that we can use here. So I'm gonna let my rice go here for about seven minutes and then gotta continue steaming it. It's gonna take about 30 minutes all in all to get that lovely crust formed on the bottom. So I will catch you all back whenever it is time to flip. food nerds don't flip out we got Gab here hey food nerds and it is the moment you've all been waiting for time to flip a rice and reveal the tadig are you ready Gab yeah be careful when you flip it okay I'm gonna put a plate over top of the pot uh -huh. but before we do that let me take off the lid here so you can feel just how much moisture was absorbed in our towel. Feel that? Yeah, it kind of feels like a facial almost. Yeah. It's really warm. You said it wasn't hot to the touch, but it definitely has some heat to it. Like a sauna. It's like a sauna. Kind of smell like saffron now. Uh-huh, it's not a bad smell. So there are a couple different ways that you could flip out your rice. Food nerds, you can kind of spoon it out and then take a spatula and scoop out the tadig, or you can go out a more ambitious way <laughs> a dramatic way put a plate right on top like so and then yeah you probably want an oven mitt here it barely fits and then um count down from three and three, then three two one flip neck oh okay all right i think i got it it's a little bit lopsided. Yeah. Wow. Oh, steamy. That's pretty. Yum. It has like a really pretty, like yellowy, orangey, golden color from the saffron. Mm hmm. And mm -hmm. it looks like nice and crisp. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to the sound, food nerds. We've got a fork here. And use that for your ringtone, guys. Yeah. Very nice and crisp. You want to taste it? Yeah. Let's taste. This is going to go alongside of our uh, caress bademjan, which mm -hmm. is like an eggplant stew with beef. Ooh, hear that crunch. That's nice. The bottom is super like crusty, but the inner parts of the rice are perfectly cooked and tender. And it's super like buttery or ghee if you use ghee. I did it's use really ghee. Really good. And super buttery and rich. I'm gonna look at my fingers. It's very yeah. 
Very buttery. Mm. That's gonna be delicious. Are you excited? I am excited. We're getting hungry over here. It's late. And we haven't eaten all day. <laughs> so, we're gonna sign off now, food nerds. But don't go too far because you still got a last bite to listen to. Are you excited for that, Gab? Always. This last bite is a story about some nuts. Some, some pistachio nuts. nuts. Ooh. You just got pistachios for Easter. I did. In fact, that's what I'm about to tell the, the food nerds about. The inspiration of this week's Spoiler last bite. Alert. <laughs> <laughs> so don't go too far, food nerds. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And Gab, as always, remind the food nerds of what they need to do. Stay freaking hungry! <laughs> <laughs> Stay hungry, everyone. Bye, y'all. See you all for last bite. See you next week. Thank you so much, food nerds, for joining us for another episode of Literally Delicious. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for Last Bite. In today's Last Bite, I'll tell you a little bit about my weekend food nerds. I went and visited family, saw my grandma, saw other relatives, my uncles, my cousins, for the first time in a while as we celebrated the Easter holiday. And during Easter, my mom put out a bowl of pistachios, which are one of my favorite snacks. And my grandma said, aren't pistachios supposed to be red? And I looked kind of confusedly for a moment and then thought of my nicest response. And I said, well, you know, they kind of they can have sometimes a little pink hue to them. Thinking all the while, no, pistachios are green. Pistachios have always been green. But I was so very mistaken. You see, if you are like me, uh, no older than 30 years old, you probably have never seen a red pistachio before. And if you've never seen one, Food Nerds, if you are able to right now, look it up. These were pistachios not of any natural hue of red, but rather dyed, completely red. And there's an interesting story behind this that connects to today's episode. The red pistachios are from Iran and a certain Iranian vendor seller of pistachios would dye his uh, pistachios red so as to differentiate them on the shelves and it also did a couple other things dyeing the shells bright red hid any stains or any imperfections that were on the shell and uh, they also just looked really, really cool. Now, why can't you find any red pistachios anywhere? Well, pistachios are native to the Middle East, and in 1979, due to the Iran hostage crisis, there was an embargo placed on Iranian pistachios. Since then, the number of pistachio trees in the United States, and especially in California, has grown exponentially, so there's no real reason anymore to import pistachios from the Middle East. And for the record, the ban on Iranian pistachios was lifted in 1981, according to an article by Alison Spiegel for Huffington Post. But it was enforced again later from 1987 to 2000, and then reinstated by President Obama in 2011 in response to Iran's growing nuclear program. So, if you've ever wondered where did the red pistachios go to, it is 
as much part of politics and United States relations with the Middle East, in particular Iran, as it is the development of pistachios and the growth of pistachios in the United States. So, pistachios are such a great snack, and they also have an interesting food history. Okay, food nerds, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to stop by our Instagram, at LiteraryDelishPod, and see today's recipes as well as some other fun photos and other food nerd stuff. All right. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and I'll see you all back here next time. Stay hungry, food nerds. Mm-hmm.